Psalm 132, where we will find ourselves. Turn on the device here so you can actually hear me. Psalm 132, thank you again for being in the house of God today. I appreciate it much. I issue a challenge for you, not just for today, but also including for today. I'm going to issue a challenge for us as believers, a biblical challenge, to put ourselves under the authority of this book. Word of God. You can envision it if it were over you. So now I put myself under it. Follow it. Obey it. Not to come to it as a theoretical exercise or just an academic thing trying to learn some facts. Certainly the facts are worth learning. That's part of knowledge. But... I challenge it to you. And this one challenged me with that, and I took the challenge of it, and I tried to renew that. I want to be under the authority of it. And uh, so let's, let's do that. Psalm 132, and uh, let's begin, if you would follow along as I read aloud in verse 1. And we're going to look at the first five verses. And I'm going to pre-warn you in this morning's message, my delivery will be a little different than usual. <laughs> and some of you come around here, you go, what's usual, preacher? You deliver a lot of different ways. Uh, so you never know if you're going to get a, a Bible study or camp meeting when you come in, but, uh, or a mixture. But uh, uh, I'll be sticking a little more closely to my outline because of the way I want to phrase things this morning. By the way, there are four pages of it. So what do you say for me sticking closely to it? Thank you. Yeah. you do. Those who are new to the church or visitors, what you don't want to see is no outline. Okay, If I'm flying free, it's dangerous. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes, nor slumber to mine eyelids, until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. And I want to speak to you this morning from the Scripture on the subject of where God lives. Now, for those my resident theologians, I understand God is all places. But I'm talking about where God abides in that particular place where He puts His attention. And I want to talk to you about where God lives. And uh, I want to help you with that. Well, let's pray together, all right? Father, it's been a good morning already. Just that song Sister Francis just sang, thinking about that. And what we got to sing together in the congregation, our Sunday school lessons, every bit of it, and your people being together, the laughter I heard in the hallway between the uh, Sunday school hour and the morning service, and your people greeting one another. It's precious, and I thank you for it. And I pray that you'll bless and help me to do my part. And uh, Lord, as I stand to deliver the Word of God, may I do it in the same way that you want it delivered. May I give emphasis where you want that emphasis. I pray you'll bless and guide us. Guide me in the speaking. Guide your people before me here in the hearing. And may we love you better because we've met together, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to come in contact with a great subject in the Word of God. And that's the title I just gave to you, Where God Lives. Evident in the passage, you look at it there, that the psalmist, it's, it's referring to a, a, a longing that David had in his heart. And that longing is shown that he had a longing for a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. 
David desired that. It was a big deal to him uh, to have that that way. We're going to learn a lot this morning. Tell you ahead of time, all right? But it's going, but it's put together orderly. Uh, even if you're new to the Bible, you will not feel overwhelmed this morning because we're going to be learning a lot about the same subject. We're not going to be giving you ten different things and asking you to remember all of them, but we're going to learn a lot about one thing, and then we're going to be using our Bibles a lot. Now, I say this in all seriousness. If you're not familiar with your Bible, maybe you're not as bad off as I was when I first accepted the Lord and I didn't know, I didn't know where Genesis was. I knew nothing of the Bible. And uh, I found that in the front of most Bibles, there's an index that has the uh, order of the uh, books of the Bible and then you'll have the corresponding pages with that. It might be a good thing, especially as you're learning your Bible, to put a marker there at the beginning of your Bible. And so since we do use the Bible a lot in this church, uh, you can find things more easily and more readily with that. And whenever we are reading together, you can have the benefit of getting things in through your eyes as well as your ears, and it'll be a help to you. And so those things are there. And I do say this also, not jokingly, if you're looking, you don't know where something is, and I've begun to read and you're not there yet, don't just keep flipping around. It's better for you to stop and actually catch what I'm saying. It's better for you and your neighbors. Uh, then if you keep going and you get there about the time I go to another another passage. And so we will be using our Bibles a lot this morning, so be ready with that. And uh, I know you'll be listening with careful interest to learn because what I'm talking about today is where God lives. I know He's everywhere. In fact, the Bible talks about that in several places. But God puts His specific focused attention at different times in some different places. Let me talk to you about some of the places the Bible's talked about with it. First one where it talks about where God dwells and uh, his, his dwelling place was a thing called the sanctuary. It was also called the tabernacle. It was movable. Basically, if you'd seen it, it was large, rather ornate in, in what it was made of and especially in what the furnishings were. It was a very large tent. And uh, it's called a sanctuary. That's a Bible word for it. It's called a tabernacle. That's what, it, that's what it was. It was a place, a tabernacle is a meeting and dwelling together place. That's what the word is. You could say we're tabernacling together this morning. We've come together as God's people. See, God's church, and uh, some of you may be part of God's church. You're part of His people, His body, which is the church. But you're not a member of Lighthouse Baptist Church, but you're part of God's people, having been saved by His grace and being His people. But this congregation that congregates or meets here we're scattered throughout in fact we have at least four i think five different counties you come from we we come from a long distance y'all are up in uh, uh you're upper arlington up your way and we come down and randy you're down below logan down that area but that way and then we go to zanesville came over from over there a bunch of us from over in the circleville area and that so why we're called a local church i have no idea I think it's more fitting to call it a loco church sometimes, to tell you the truth. But, uh, but be that as it may, uh, there's a lot of gathering in from a lot of areas, and we do that. And so the first time is called a tabernacle, okay, or, or the sanctuary, and we have that. And uh, that's, that's an important thing. Look in Exodus uh, chapter 25. I want you to notice a phrase because it sets the pattern for everything else we'll be doing. So we're going to be preaching a little bit of Bible study style with you this morning, but there's a purpose for that. I'm wanting to get some foundation in you regarding these things with the house of God. Exodus chapter 25, excuse me. I think that's why I said to you, 25. So the first thing we know is called a sanctuary or the what? Tabernacle, all right? 
Remember, remember how it works. The faster you pass the quiz, the sooner you go to lunch. So tabernacle, all right? That's our first one. Let's look at a couple verses that have to deal with this. In verse 8, it says, And let them make a sanctuary, the name I told you, that I may dwell among them. God said, I want a physical meeting place for me and my people. He said, let them make, a sanct- make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now notice it's for Him. I've said to you over and over again, Lighthouse Baptist Church isn't for me and it isn't primarily for you. It's for Christ. Now we benefit from it. And uh, I refer to this as my church. Not that I'm exercising lordship over your faith, but it's an endearing phrase. And like I talk about my wife. It doesn't mean I own and control my wife. That means she's object of my love, my affection. And so um, this church is for God. The main thing, so I said, well, I didn't get something this morning. Well, I, w- I want you to get something when you come to church. I labor for that. I labor for that. I want you to be fed. I want you to get what you need. But you and I aren't the primary thing. It's that God be pleased with our meeting. God be pleased with our singing. That's why it's important what we do. It's important. I, I appreciated your good singing this morning, your participation. Why? Because the Lord sees, and it's important to Him. And so, uh, so we should do this. And so, anyway, look, at, look what it says. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I have showed thee. Now, notice the little phrase, because this is a controlling phrase. After the pattern of the tabernacle. In the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. We have in storage here in the building, we have the blueprints of the various buildings we've built here. Of course, it's three separate buildings we've built. It looks as if it's one building. We took out a hill and 66 trees and took down two buildings. And we've done all that construction over the years. And there are blueprints for the different buildings. We got those blueprints. We built according to that. It was the same way with the tabernacle. God showed Moses the way that he wanted his house built. If you were to hire an architect to build your house, if you were to hire an architect to build a building, that architect isn't just supposed to come up with something and say, here's what I think is best, then you, you build it. In fact, when we were building one of our buildings, uh, I'm not sure which edition it was or which one it was, I met with an architect and interviewed him. And he was, the whole time, he wasn't giving me suggestions, which I'm very, very open to. He wasn't giving me, have you thought about this, which I'm very open to. He said, oh, no, you, you don't do that. And no, this would be better. No, we don't want to move that tree. And no, we don't. About five minutes into meeting with him, I thought, you're fired and you're not even hired yet. He, he didn't have a chance of landing the job for this, this church. He said, why? Because he wanted to build it according to the way he wanted to build it. He didn't want to know what the needs of the congregation were. And then when I finally had a man sit down and said, okay, and I said, here's how we structure for Sunday school. Here's what our emphasis is. Different churches have different choices of what they do. We have an emphasis. We have this because our emphasis is the Word of God, the preaching of the Word, the singing of God's songs, the, the, the serving of the Lord, that sort of thing. We have Sunday school classes because we break down. We have Sunday schools. Uh, we, we, we have five bathrooms because we're Baptists and our services last more than an hour. We have all kinds of things. You need to know what the place is like. That was a joke. You can laugh if you want to. Um, or you can laugh if you think I want you to. Um, but it is, uh, uh, we, are, uh, we, we have all these things. Things. And, and so God said, build this according to the way I show. So let's look again at it in Exodus 25. And then uh, look in, uh, I, lost, I moved my place, which is a mistake, verse 8. Again, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee. Notice the phrase, after the pattern 
of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, so shall you make it. So he said, follow the pattern. Look at verse 40 of the same chapter. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. So we're talking this morning about where God lives. The first place where God dwelt and He said, I want to meet among my people. It's called the tabernacle or what's the other name? Sanctuary, all right? I threw it to you backwards that time, didn't I? It's the, it's the sanctuary of the tabernacle with that. And, uh, and so we see that. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, after the pattern. That's important. That'll guide us the rest of the way. There's a pattern to the way God does things. God is not, doesn't do things by fiat. He doesn't just randomly do things. God's a God that does things in a structured way. And so he, uh, uh, he had a pattern for it. Second time, second thing that shows up, and the tabernacle was used for many, many years, but the second thing that showed up that was the place where God lives, it was that meeting place. You had the first one, which is the tabernacle. Want to take a guess what the second one was? It starts with the T. Temple. The temple, all right? And so the temple shows up the next time. By the way, there are three different temples that were built. You have the first one and the most glorious of all of them, not the largest. Actually, the second one had a square footage that was a little larger, but it was not as glorious at all. Um, but the first one was what is commonly known as Solomon's Temple. And uh, Solomon's Temple was finished in about 105, 1005, 1005 B.C. It was about when it was done. And uh, that was, uh, uh, that's when it was completed. Then the second time, that, that one got leveled. Nebuchadnezzar came through and others attacked it and it just, it just got destroyed because of God's people going away from God. By the way, the Israelite, God's people, were never defeated by an outside enemy when they were right with God. Every time before they fell to an outside enemy, they had decayed from within. And that's an important thing to learn. And so the second one was by Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was sent back to build the temple. And that one started and didn't finish for quite a while and finally got cleaned up and put into full usage after Nehemiah rebuilt the wall and all that. But it was about 520 B.C., during the time of Zerubbabel and, and that happening. So you had Temple of Solomon's Temple. You have Zerubbabel's Temple. Not as much is known about it. It's not the one you ever see pictures of, of the drawings of what it would have been like and all that. And that came along. And then you have the temple that was standing during Jesus' day. And that was not the same. It's on the same place, but it was not the same temple that Solomon had built. But it is called Herod's Temple. And when it refers to Herod's temple and the great buildings around that temple, it was a huge complex. It was not just the temple or the sanctuary proper, but it was a huge complex that was built with it. And uh, it was first mentioned in history and was first announced that there was going to be this great building built in about either 20 or 19 B.C. The final buildings and the completion of the thing was not until about 64 A.D. The thing was, it was destroyed shortly after that. And some things that went on with that. But uh, when Jesus goes to the temple, the temple he's going to is Herod's temple, all right? I'm going to belabor a lot of facts. So the first place where God met was called the what? Tabernacle, okay? It was important. By the way, did you know this? Mentioned, I think, on Wednesday, there was a particular group of the Levites, the priestly people, that were given the job of moving that tabernacle every time God moved the people. See, God appeared in a pillar of fire at night and there's a pillar of cloud during the day. And he was over the tabernacle. The people would then pitch their tents. They lived in tents, and like the Bedouins still do. And 
they would be around the tabernacle. Everything centered around that because that was the house of God, the dwelling of God. So they made their living decisions based on the house of God. And so when they were there, then certain tribes were to the north and certain tribes were to the south and then to the east and to the west, uh, east and the west, and according to the way I'm doing it. And uh, those, those tribes would be out there with that. And every now and then, whenever God chose to, that column would move. And when it started moving, they all had to move. Everybody had to pack up their house, pack everything up, and get ready to move. There was a group of people called the Kohathites, and to them was given the moving of the tabernacle as well. And there was a lot to move with that tabernacle. Just the uh, way it was made on the badger skins and stuff that would have been very, very heavy. And all that went to putting it up, and all that it took to take care of it, they had to go with it. And I, I was saying uh, something last Wednesday, and then uh, uh, Brother Carpenter and Miss Holly and I were, were talking yesterday, and I said, in the Kohathite household, man, they had something going, didn't they? I mean, you can imagine, those wives, those Kohathite wives had to be tough. Because every time the, the clouds started to move, their husband had to go move the tabernacle, and their house had to move too. And you think about that one. That's double duty right there. So my, my theories of Kohathite women were tough. Um, but anyway, they would move that, and they would, they would go with it. And it was very important. That was the center of everything. And then you had the temple that was built. And it was very, very important. First time that came into David's minds in 2 Samuel. Look at there, if you will. And I've got some other verses I'm going to read to you, but look in 2 Samuel. You can't find that. It's after 1 Samuel. Makes it easy that way. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter seven. Look in verse one. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king, that's David, said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. He had a beautifully furnished palace. He said, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. It bothered David that the ark of the covenant and all the vessels for the worship of God and where the worship of God happened was in a tent and he's in a palace. You got to understand, that king started out as a shepherd. He knew what the, all that stuff was about. And that just bothered him that his God didn't that in his mind he, he was thinking his God you know wasn't being treated as respectfully as he was as a king, and Nathan said to the king, "Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee." And uh, the pretty amazing thing. Look over in First Chronicles. Just hang a right there in Samuel and head over to go past Kings and then Chronicles. Um, look over in First Chronicles chapter twenty-two. First Chronicles chapter twenty-two. More detail with this. So the first place where God dwelt was called the what? Tabernacle. Second place is what? The temple. And so this is when that transition is starting to happen. David wanted to build the temple. You're going to find out in what we read here. We'll, we'll read this and listen with interest. And the fact is that you'll find out that David was not allowed to do this. And I love David's response. It's worthy of a message in and of itself. In fact, it's received message about it around here. The fact that he didn't say, I don't get to build it, and then went home. 
He said, okay, Lord, I'll do whatever part I can do for Your work to go forward. God, help us to be a generation that's forward-looking and realizing there's the work of God to do more than just in our place and our time. And may we be concerned about getting foundations and things in strongly enough that the Word of God and the, and the work of God can, can, can continue. Look in uh, 1 Chronicles 22. And uh, let's look at the references here. Verse 1, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar, the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the, new, or the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails for the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. They didn't even bother to weigh it. Also cedar trees in abundance for the, for the Zidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And by the way, I used to think when I was first reading that, I used to think, man, those areas must have had big forts. That wasn't the situation. Tyre is a port city, and they would bring things in by shipping and everything for this project that was going on. I mean, some things were locally, but, but they were bringing things in for shipping. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord, look at this word, must be exceeding magnificent. Isn't that a great word? It's the only time it shows up in the Bible. Maybe the only time it shows up in the English language. It's a wonderful, wonderful word. Must be exceeding magnificent. It's got to be so good that we've got to have a special word attached to it. Of fame and glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, I shall be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now my son, the Lord be with thee. Prosper thou and build the house of the Lord thy God as he has said of thee. Only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel that thou mayest keep the law of the Lord thy God. Then, then, when you keep the law of God, then shalt thou prosper. If thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses with concerning Israel, be strong and good courage. Dread not, nor be dismayed. Now behold, I love this little phrase, in my trouble... I have prepared for the house of the Lord. We need to learn that, don't we? There's a lot of people just quit serving the Lord for trouble to have in their life. First thing goes on. It's amazing. Something happens and they say, well, I, I can't be in church. I was upset about this or that. Now it's time when you need the house of God. Been busy weeks. Or my, we thought, the one night we thought we lost my brother sister called and they were trying to rush my brother back in ICU and didn't think they could intubate him. 
nor did they think they could trach him. And he, his oxygen was already down to 55, and his heart rate was through the roof. He was trying to climb the people taking care of him, trying to get to oxygen, because the tumor had shut off his breathing. Been busy, been things going on. Been involved in some legal processes for my mother-in-law, different law firms and places here and in Kentucky and stuff. Busy. I'm going to tell you something. We need to learn how to serve God in our trouble or we're not going to do much of serving God. Mark that down. He's worth it. He's worth it. He said, Now behold, in my trouble, I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a thousand thousand talents of silver, and of brass and iron without weight, for it is in abundance. Timber also and stone have I prepared, and thou mayest add there too. And so he said, I've, I've done all this. So the first place where God dwelt is a place called the what? Tabernacle. Second place is a place called the what? This place was phenomenal. I won't go into all the detail about it, but this was what came into the, the heart of David. Now, it's an interesting verse. Listen to this out of Isaiah 66. And the time frame of this is in uh, the 700s BC. And so it's in between that first temple when it was finished and then when the second temple had to be constructed by Zerubbabel. But listen what God gave the prophet Isaiah regarding God's house. It says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? God reminds the children of Israel and says, You've built this, and he was pleased with it, but he says, I want you to understand that what you think is so grand and what you think is absolutely above the top, he said, Heaven is my throne, earth's my footstool. But you understand that the God of the house is so much more than the house of God. Sometimes people get fixated with it. It's easy to lose sight and say, oh, we've got this building, we have this place, and we have this development, and therefore it must be of God. Let me tell you something. It was sad in the book of Revelation when the church laid to see us said, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And the Lord Jesus had to say to him that you're poor and blind and miserable and naked. I continue with the verse. He says, Where is the house that you build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made. <laughs> and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. He said, Now here's where I go. Now watch. This is going to figure in for the next transition. You remember we started with the tabernacle, a tent dwelling. Then a beautiful, beautiful temple was built. It was well known throughout the entire world. But then in this verse in Isaiah... He's talking about, God's talking about how magnificent His dwelling is. He makes reference to what they built for Him. And then it seems as almost He shifts to something different, but it isn't. Then He says, to this man will I look. What's that about? He's talking about His dwelling. He's talking about the heavens and the earth being footstool. He's talking about the building they built for Him. And then to this man will I look. You'll see how it ties in in a moment. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. The word contrite spirit is a proper spirit before God, realizing our lack and realizing His, his greatness. You know, John was writing me a note. Of course, he can't speak and he's they put an electronic device in and such. He'll be learning that. But before surgery, he couldn't speak at all. And 
he was writing notes to me and I went over and visited with him last week when we spent had a good visit. And uh, we had joked around some. It's the nature of our family. We have a... Our family has a distorted, almost merciless sense of humor. After you fell downstairs, after we got done laughing, we would all find out if you're okay. And that's just our family. You say, oh, I think that's terrible. Just be glad you're not related then. That's all I can say. And so we'd had a little bit of that strange humor that we have as a family. And, and then John, he wrote on this seriously. And he, I could tell his eyes seriously. He said, I have no one to be angry at but myself. And he knows that the cancer, throat cancer, is no question that the lifetime of smoking is what it causes a specific thing. He knows in our family how many have died because of relation, uh, situations with tobacco use. It's, it's almost as bad as what alcohol does. Our families, I don't know if our, our tendencies towards acidic nature bodies or what the deal is, but it's just unreal if you go through the family lineage. And uh, he said, I have no one to be angry with but myself. He says, he says, how often, and I've almost got it word for word, do we know what we shouldn't do and we do it anyway? Say, so you're the preacher. I bet you delivered a sermon. No, <laughs> I sense enough. No, I need to deliver a sermon. Somebody's already trying to figure things out and hurting that bad. What I did was I showed him in the scripture in Timothy where it talks about that the man of God must be gentle, must not strive, must be gentle, apt to teach, instructing those that oppose themselves. I said, You see the little phrase right there, John? I had my New Testament. I said, You see that oppose themselves? And he gives it this. That's what we do, isn't it? Well, what's a contrite spirit? Contrite spirit is realizing that. Contrite spirit's not you walking around like this, like you know, like you're scared of everything. A contrite spirit is the fact that's taking responsibility for the fact that we made choices that aren't good, and we have a tendency towards it, and being well known up to it, and realize our God is the completion of things. There's a reason why we need a Savior, it's because we're incomplete and we're broken. And so here's what he said about that there. Now, interesting. So the first place where God dwelled is where? It's in, in the tabernacle. Second place is what? Temple. And then the last one, you ready for this? Look over in, uh, look in John chapter 14. So where does he dwell now? I believe we ought to be respectful. And the Bible talks about the church, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And I know that specific reference deals with the people, but I believe that these buildings that uh, God's tithe is paid for and that uh, God's people have built, I, should, I believe they should be treated respectfully. We allow the children to play some in the back, especially in the bad weather because the church is a nice place. We have a lot of kids here, but they shouldn't be run wild. You should teach them to be respectful. If they start getting out of hand and going beyond, where they're having to be told more than once that, hey, it's allowed that nobody can do anything, that kind of thing. As a parent, you ought to set them down for a little while. Yeah, you're not correcting properly if you're saying the same thing two, three, four times to your kids. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm talking about being something they can depend on. And you keep doing that, you're going to keep doing that forever. You need to say, here now, here, let's settle down now. You're getting too rowdy. Uh, and they turn right around and do it again, then you set them down an, an appropriate amount of time. Don't do what I did to Logan when he was a kid. I didn't mean to. That's, uh, these boys both, you two, it was you. 
You're not over that yet, are you? Come here, man. Let's reconcile, bub. <laughs> you can be all right. <laughs> He's looking at me like that. They never grow out of it, especially the babies. They're always brats. But uh, uh, it was you. I thought it was your brother. Well, he probably deserved it too. I don't know. Did you have it happen to? Oh, brother. Don't take advice from me as a dad. I was draconian. But uh, they, they would rather us beat them with the two-by-four. In fact, they usually were doing that to each other um, than, than have them sit still. And uh, yet they weren't, you know, they've always been able to enjoy, but not to go beyond. And they wouldn't know second, third chance, either me or Mama. Mama didn't have to have me back her up. She took care of it. And uh, was got to sit down, and I apparently did it to each of them, um, that uh, uh, set them down and said, now you sit there until I tell you. Oh, that's dangerous when you're the preacher. All the people and everything after service. I think it was like their next two birthdays they missed or something. <laughs> anyway, it was much later. And, and I remember, I don't know which one, apparently as I've done it to both, my wife came to me and said, Honey, I said, yeah. She said, uh, whichever one it was, said, uh, were you going to let them back up? And I'm like, oh, my soul. And uh, what can you say at a point in time like that? But there you go. Um, so now I've confessed in front of you. But look, at, look in John chapter 14. You say, well, what's that, preacher? We're teaching them. You say, well, that makes sense. They should be taught to respect and not be slamming around, damaging things, stuff like that. But I'm going to show you in the next just few minutes. I'm going to show you what is the vital part of the whole message. Because you've kind of figured out now we don't have a tabernacle. Sometimes we refer to this area of our buildings as a sanctuary, and that's not bad. That's a biblically referenced term. Um, we, we don't have a temple now. That's not what we do. We have something different than God did. And look where it started. Look in John chapter 14. And let me just get you right to the verses. Look at verse 16. There's wonderful things happening here. Well, we'll begin in verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now watch what happens. He's preparing them, as Jesus always did a lot of preparing. He's preparing them for when He's going back to heaven and will not be walking among them in the flesh anymore. Look at verse 16. And I, Jesus will pray the Father, and He will give you another Comforter that He may abide with you forever. He identifies the Comforter in verse 17. Even the Spirit of Truth. He's, also, he's called the Comforter. In John 14, 15, 16, He's called the Comforter. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And He's called the Holy Ghost. So you would not mistake that those are talking about the same, the same, same person, same thing. Now watch what happens. And by the way, you're going to have great evidence here. We don't have three gods. We have a God who showed Himself three different ways to mankind. Look what happens here with it. Even the Spirit of truth, verse 17, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him. Look, look at the phrasing. But ye know Him. This is Jesus talking to His disciples there in front of Him. For He dwelleth, look at that next word, with you. Christ was among them at that time. Look at the transition. Look what he points towards. And shall be in you. That's going to happen. The Holy Spirit of God's going to come to dwell inside of us. Christ will not physically be on the earth anymore. And so he will be living in us and, and, and living out through us supposed to be. We're supposed to be living out those things he'd want to accomplish. Verse 18. I, Jesus, will not leave you comfortless. I, Jesus, will come to you. You say, wait a minute, he just said the Spirit of truth would come. Exactly. Exactly. And he identifies himself there with it. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, 
Because I live, ye shall live also. It's a great confidence that the believer has that we're kept by the everlasting life of Christ. What's the transition? He said the transition is God's not going to be meeting at a certain place. He's going to be dwelling in you as a believer. Let's see the fruition of that. Let's look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And again, I'm not doing a lot of things to keep your attention this morning. I'm counting on you having an appetite for the Word of God to learn about where God dwells. I'm trying to help you with something here. Trying to help you to understand that if you're a believer in this room, and by that, not just that you give mental assent to who Jesus Christ is, but your faith is is on Him. If that's the case, then someone lives inside of you. Your God dwells inside of you. It's not that ye are divine, it's that He dwells inside of you. And that's a wonderful truth. 1 Corinthians talks about this and gives it out because it is such a revolutionary thing. Look in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. It says, flee fornication. Run from it. Get away from it. Don't put yourself in the position where it will happen. You've got to treat it like the aggressive enemy it is. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. It's a self-destructive act. They're saying, what are you talking about? Look at the next verse. What? Know ye not that your... What's the word, church? Body. Your body. Your physical body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. And ye are not your own. You are bought with a price. Conclusion. For Therefore, because of that, glorify God in your what? Body. Your physical body. And in your spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's your spirit. Which are God's. And so what happened, there's a transition. So the place where God dwelled was first the tabernacle, then it was the temple, and now it's in believers. It's us. I've taken a lot of time trying to draw to you your attention how important that temple was, how important that tabernacle was. And yet we live in a day in which it seems that many, many of God's people for whatever reason, are either unaware or are totally ignoring the fact that they are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And are following the degradation and the downward slide of the society around them. God has much better things for you than that. Our, God, our bodies, the temple of the Holy Ghost, since we're expressly taught to glorify God in that body, let me give you some verses and think about how they fit into our day-by-day living. Think about this now. Think about this. Remember the, that little phrase, after the pattern, there was a pattern. There's a pattern to the way the tabernacle went. There's a pattern to the way the temple went. There's a pattern to the way we're supposed to behave ourselves. So let's think of these verses, how they deal with our day-by-day living. I'm just going to read them to you. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
For this is the will of God. This is the Bible telling you that. Even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You're supposed to know how. I'm supposed to instruct you. That's what this morning is about. Look in, uh, or not looking, but you, you can if you want to, but I'm going to read it. I'll be through it quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. You may want to jot these down and read them later. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, watch it, of the flesh and the spirit. How many of you in here are old enough to remember the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness? And you probably thought that was a Bible verse. Everybody in eastern Kentucky did, where, I, where my people are from. But it isn't. But that truth goes throughout the Bible. There are implications to all this. So here we have that we are now the dwelling place of God. We're looking for a pattern. The pattern is a temple that in its order in its cleanliness, in its beauty of arrangement, was to be exceeding magnificent. I don't know about y'all. I don't think just in general appearance I'm going to hit the exceeding magnificent category. Uh, kind of a uh, run-of-the-mill, not-quite-tall 57-year-old. And, uh, but I can, and this really excites me, I can be exceeding magnificent for my Lord. Not pretentious. And it doesn't matter if I had work, uh, work clothes on, cutting wood and running chainsaw, or if I'm dressed for preaching, or if what I'm doing or making a hospital visit or doing something like that. That's not the issue. The issue is that I can serve God with my body. You say, well, it's just going to die someday. Yeah, and until that day, it's supposed to serve God. Until that day, it's supposed to be yielded to the Lord. Until that day, it's supposed to be a useful vessel. God didn't just leave me on this earth for my amusement. He allows me to enjoy many things. And as I mentioned Wednesday, He lets us enjoy much of, of what He's given us. Thank God for it. He's a very kind Heavenly Father. But He's given me a purpose. And He dwells within me. And He dwells within you. It's not a preacher thing. That's those who actually are children of God. We're looking for this. That's why the Bible teaches about our adorning. It teaches about modest apparel. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all thy things, all thy things. My wife has asked me something this morning and something she's, um, of course she doesn't do the preaching or anything obviously, but we have preachers. We don't, our children's church and stuff are not just, yeah, let's play games. There's preaching in the word and they're taught and they go through and all this. And, and so, but there's a time afterwards and she tries to prepare something to put in the children's minds. Right now she started a thing on the fruit of the spirit. And so she was asking me as we were both getting ready this morning and I leave the house before she does, but she was asking me about some things about the teaching of that and some things about it. And we had a good discussion. And I told her, I said, it's, I said, you have to go very simple about what fruit is and what it's for. It's sort of like the word way. People say, in all thy ways acknowledge him. People say, what all does that mean? They try to get way spooky on this stuff. It's not. The way, in all thy ways, the way you talk, the way you conduct business, the way you work, the way you treat people, the way you dress, the way you, whatever. In all thy ways. How simple is that? 
And this same thing is this, when it says, let all thy things. What things? Everything. Well, that's how we're supposed to operate the church. Yes, it is. But that doesn't mean here, let all thy things be done decently in order. And on the home front, it's all chaos and nonsense. Sometime I challenge you. Sometime read about the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and new earth. And let's look what God has for us. Look what kind of God we serve. Let all thy things be done decently in order. Because we are the temple of God, and you're the only temple that's going to be seen around the town or wherever you live this week, we should represent Him as such. There should never be anything about you and I that dishonor His name or degrade us. One of the things I really hate about our adversary is that he is constantly, constantly influencing to degrade the people of God. For them to live below their heritage. For them to live, live in a trashy, filthy way that the world lives. To destroy themselves with their lust and their appetites. To, to live in a degraded condition. And God doesn't want that for you. Our God didn't come to take us down. Our God came to bring us up. He always brings us up. And in the matter of salvation, He brought us up from hell. In the matter of living for Christ, He brings us up to a better way of living. May God help us to have sense enough to know we're the temple of God. May we take it seriously. You may want to jot some of these references down. They'll be quick. I'm almost done this morning. But you may want to jot some down so you can make some choices with a biblical foundation. I'm not talking about choices. You know, jot things down. You'd have to have something in your hand to write with. See, I, I, you need to get in the habit of not just letting things slide by. And your preacher has spent hours in prayer and tears for you with the message. And it's biblical, then it's for you. That means you're supposed to get something from it to put into your life. But you need to make decisions based on the Bible, not what you see around you. In Job 13.28, the Bible refers to a rotten thing, specifically a garment that is moth-eaten, tattered, full of holes. That verse, Job 13.28, shows up with that type of garment being in context with judgment and condemnation. In Genesis 35, now I'll give the references slow enough you can get them. Genesis 35, Jacob tells his family, here's what he tells them, be clean and change your garments. Why, why did he say this to his whole family? Because they were going to a place called Bethel. That name Bethel means the house of God. Where Jacob originally met God, he said, we're going to God's dwelling place and where I met God for, at first. And he said, prepare. It's interesting what I told him to do. Psalm 102 verse 26 makes a reference to waxing old as a garment. And what that's referring to in that psalm 102 verse 26, it's referring to this, this heaven and earth which eventually wear out here. Look in Isaiah 51. Let me show you the beauty of the Lord set in contrast to a tattered, moth-eaten world. Isaiah 51. The first place God dwelt was called the what? Tabernacle. Second place was called the what? Temple. And then, where does He dwell now according to the Scripture? He dwells in us. And I can't find a book as big as Isaiah. There we go. Isaiah 51. I jumped both sides of it. <clears throat> I think I need to check my, my friend of my Bible again. Isaiah 51. Look in verse 6 and 8. Look at the contrast here. 
Look, look what good things God has here. Lift up your eyes, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. You say, that's not real encouraging. No, but it's reality of things. But, don't you love that? But my salvation shall be how long, church? Forever. And my righteousness shall not be abolished. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Hey, look, I don't care what government passes what law, you're not going to abolish God's righteousness. Can't be done. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. In other words, they make fun of you because you're different. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. Contrast again. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. That's why in the book of Revelation, his salvation is referred to as, uh, as a garment and linen, white and clean. Why is that? Now, we are called priests and kings in the Lord. Guess where the priests did their work? What building they started with or what dwelling? Tabernacle and then the what? Temple. Now, we are called priests. Do you know that? You're called a priest in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? I'm not a Kohathite. I'm a man. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a priest and a king. That's amazing. And, and by the way, that's after the order of... Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll sidetrack if I start going there. Um, but they're priests and they're kings and Lord. Now watch this. The garments of the priest were expressly said, here's the Bible words, to consecrate them. That's Exodus 28 verse 3. To consecrate them, show what they were made for, and to set them apart for glory and for beauty. That's what God wants for you. Doesn't mean you have to be fancy. And I need to add this. It certainly never gives anybody an excuse for looking down at someone because you think that they're dressed in an inferior way. If you were to leave this meeting this morning and say, well, that preacher thinks you have to be at such a level or you're nothing, you, first of all, you would not know my heart Neither you've been with me a while and haven't yet learned anything about my heart or you're new enough, you, you don't know. And I don't ask anybody to trust me. I ask you to give... Hearing what I say, see if it's biblical. That's all I ever ask you to do. So, listen to me well. You ever look down on, make fun of somebody, harass somebody because you think they're lesser or whatever like that, you're out of line with the Spirit of Christ with that. And that's not what I'm, uh, that's not what I'm addressing. What I'm addressing is we're the temple of God. That's what I'm talking about today. We're, we are where God dwells. Let's do our best for the Lord. Let's be our best for the Lord, whatever that may be. And listen gladly to these final verses I give you. The great things God has for people and for His dwelling place. Listen to these verses. This is your heritage. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my, of the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. I like that. You ever hear about getting decked out? That's where it comes from. And as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. I love that. I have a final question for this part. Would you decorate and keep the house where you live 
like you decorate and keep the house where God lives. I'll let that settle in. Comport yourself as a child of God. Oh man, I work a job where I get greasy and muddy and everything else. There's no lack of dignity in that. But even in that type of a work setting, there's a big difference between somebody who carries herself well and shows respect for who they are. Here's the basic thing about it. You've got to get a hold of this thing of who made you. And who gave himself for you. And you need to understand the value of that, not based on some kind of puffed up, you know, here, here's me, you know, self, self-esteem type deal. But realizing that the God of heaven took on the form of a man for you. That means there's a great value to you. And I am trying by the word of God to get you to see the great value that you have. And to follow the Lord with that. And know the freedom of that. <laughs> Where God lives, He lives inside of you. You've been very patient this morning. Let me read you a quick verse here regarding your inheritance. My wife and her brother Kenny had great interest that they'd never had before in what might have been in their Aunt Lillian's house and what might have been in their Aunt Lillian's barns. They, Aunt Lily, she was called. My wife's mother is 89 years old, the youngest of four sisters, and only one has passed. Lily passed just over a year ago. Genetics pretty good on that side of the family. But they loved Aunt Lily. We liked her place, but they never went through her house wondering what she had or wondering what it might be worth. That wasn't at all. Well, when Aunt Lily passed away, they found out that the two of them were named among a few other nieces or nephews. I think there were seven total that were named by name that were to inherit. They were to have a sale, sell the interior properties and stuff, not the property itself, but all the interior stuff. And that was to be evenly distributed among the seven that were named. I said, well, that's not fair. There were more than that. It's her property. She can do what she wants with it. She wanted to leave it with a one-eyed monkey. That's her business. I get a little upset if people say, well, that's not fair. I'm sorry. You know, I worked for it all my life. Whoever I'm going to give it to, I know your business. All right? Just get over that kind of stuff. But... The, the thing is, they all of a sudden, they were interested. They wondered what was in the bar, especially I'm a kid. You know? And it's not because he's money hungry, but he's, he, he's like my wife. He could talk down to a vending machine. And then he could chew down a vending machine. And, and so he's real good at that stuff. And, and, and so they wondered. Uh, they found out what tobacco lasts. Some of you don't know what that is. I do have worked tobacco fields before. So I put the tobacco stuff down on. Uh, those things sell. The, the, the people are buying those for crazy amount for each little stick because they use them for arts and crafts stuff. And there were a bunch of them there. They found out what this was worth and what that was worth. They were curious. You say, why were they curious? Because they never went to Aunt Lily saying, man, one day she's going to kick the bucket. She might like me. Okay? They loved her. But she's gone. You say, well, isn't that bad? No, she's gone. You might, I mean, might not make profit at that point. She's, she's gone. They were interested. Why? That was their inheritance. They were interested. I'm not ready to give you something. It's your inheritance. It's what your father has for you. It's yours. It's not prideful to claim it. It's not arrogant. 
It's not a health and wealth gospel to claim it. It's realizing as children of God, we can best glorify God if we live in the fullness of His promise and the fullness of obedience to Him. Let me read the verses to you. Romans 8.11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? How plain is that? 2 Timothy 3.14 says this, That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. 1 John 4.15 says it this way, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. So much more. Let me just give you a reference and, and there's more here I knew. I'd never get through everything I wanted to give you this morning. I don't mind a good meal, but I'm almost to the point now where I'm poking things down your throat. So write this reference down. And this will teach you about the habitation and how the building's supposed to fit together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 22. There's so much in there, but that's, man, I, I step a foot on that path. We're going to be there till the ice is melted. And it's not supposed to warm up till Tuesday, so that's rough. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Let me end with you something some years ago you all heard, but this is fascinating to me. And boy, I thought this captured it. This is from a book I read called Tales of the African Frontier. I like reading hunting books and I like a lot of different types of books and that sort of thing. This was not a Christian-based book. I don't know whether the man who wrote it, or actually two people wrote it, uh, Jay Hunter and Daniel Mannix. I don't know if they were believers or not, but it was not. that didn't show up in the book. It wasn't the intention of the book. It was dealing with big game hunting and some of the things that go with it. But I found, whether it be Death in the Long Grass by Capstick or some of the different ones I've read or some of the ones by Jim Corbett and, and some of the different books I've read, um, these older hunters that were in Africa, 1800s and early 1900s up through mid-1900s, they had uh, almost to a man, they had a respect for the missionaries. And the respect was that the missionaries, many of them that they encountered, they saw that these people hazarded their life to get the gospel out. They realized what they did. And, and, uh, and they saw that a lot of them had integrity and, and, and that sort of thing. And so in this book about hunting, big game hunting, there was this interesting little, uh, little couple paragraphs. And I copied it out and, and I have it here. It's a story of a missionary called Arthur Fisher. I have no idea what group or church he was associated with. Brother Fisher was being interviewed for the book about his time, about when he was a missionary in Baganda, which is now Uganda. He was 86 years old when he was being interviewed. Still in good health at the time of the interview. Here's the question that one of these two men who wrote the book asked him. The interviewer asked him this question. Did the natives object to having you interfere with their own religion? So here's this man. He was a missionary in what's now Uganda. And the big game hunter asked him, said, did the, did the missionary or did the, did the natives, uh, did they object to you interfering with their religions? And I'll read you what it said in the book now. The answer came back very thoughtfully and very clearly. This is uh, Brother Fisher. No, I can't say they did. 
You see, they really didn't have a proper religion of their own. Now, I'm going to read some things to you. Young people, it may be startling for you to realize, but it's real. It's real. It was mainly what might be called devil worship. A man would pay the priest to give him a fetish, which is like a little doll or a trinket of some type, to keep off evil spirits. Or, if he or his family were sick, he'd pay the priest to drive